on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. I would really encourage people to use kink to interrupt their usual arousal cycle. We, have, we all have a, a, a very habituated arousal cycle. that, and, and for many of us, for most of us, maybe for all of us, there's something deeply anxiety-provoking about interrupting that arousal cycle. Deeply anxiety-provoking. But it's really important. And if we confront the anxiety that that brings up, and uh, um, you know, kinky practices and, and ritual and so on is a wonderful kind of container for doing that, then so much more becomes possible. And, and when we start doing that, we, we, we can see how our, our habituated ways actually extend beyond in, in our life. And, and sex is a kind of microcosm for life. It's a kind of metaphor for life. And so when we work in the realm of sexuality, and we confront our, our, our habits and our unconsciousness, it translates into our, our life and to the world at large. I really believe that. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Justice Shunfarber, an artist, marriage counselor, and couples therapist. He is also the author of two books, including Conscious Kink for Couples, A Beginner's Guide to Using Kinky Sex and BDSM for Pleasure, Growth, Intimacy, and Healing. In our conversation today, we cover some intimate territory, including an introduction into the erotic terrain of kink, the power and peril of exploring ritual sex, and the mythic paradox between the underworld and overworld, and how to navigate power exchange between partners. And finally, we unpack the archetypal split between the good boy, bad boy dilemma that many men in this culture face and how to invite integration through conscious kink. Before we begin, a reminder to check out my offering Beyond the Podcast. This is a bi-weekly live series over Zoom that follows each new episode, where we further explore the themes and ideas touched upon here. When possible, I also invite the guest on the show to answer your questions. Beyond the Podcast is available to podcast supporters. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to learn more. And now, enjoy my conversation with Justice Shanfarber. Welcome, Justice, to the show. Thank you. Would you please begin by offering a glimpse of uh, where you're at in this moment for the listeners? Okay. Uh, well, I'm sitting in my in my office and I'm enjoying the sunshine. And a few few minutes ago, I was watching a, a little yellow bird in my quince tree and uh, feeling grateful. So, where I where I'm at, I I think ha- it has something to do with uh, kind of ease and gratitude in this moment. Mm. I'm curious what a quince tree is. 
a quince is kind of like an apple or a pear. It's in, it's in the same family, but it, it makes an inedible hard fruit, inedible until you cook it. So it's a, it's it, it's an it's an alchemizing fruit, I suppose, and it's very it's very uncommon these days. But when you cook it, uh, you can make amazing, delicious, flavorful pies and pastes and so on. Quince, okay, that's a new one. Um, uh, a little while ago, in my one of my old places I lived, there was a, a big persimmon tree in the backyard, which I but I'd never actually knew what a persimmon was until I saw these orangey tomatoey fruits growing and uh then i had to look it up i was like what the heck are percent and then of course they're delicious actually they're amazing if you know how to eat them too i i grew up in missouri a bit as a kid and there's an american persimmon that grows there so i had some experience with that you wrote a book called conscious kink for couples indeed and it feels like a good place to start by unpacking some of these words just to lay a bit of the groundwork for the listeners that may be unfamiliar with um, these, that may be unfamiliar with these words or may be unfamiliar with the context in which we're using them. And perhaps I'd love to begin, let's start with the word kink. Okay. I like words, by the way. Hmm. I mean, kink, I think, is a is a fairly globally recognized term it's probably quite loaded for some people too mm-hmm. uh that that just refers to um out of the ordinary that's how that, that that's how that's how i've come to understand and use the word um mm. sexually erotically out, out, out of the ordinary sexually erotically and then i guess on top of that i generally associate kink with BDSM or with what I often call in the book and, and otherwise erotic power exchange. We'll probably go down that path as well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned BDSM as well. Could you uh, give the definition of that or unpack that word? Well, for that, I mostly kind of rely on the literature. And, and, and my understanding is it, 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 it means uh, bondage, discipline, sadism, masochism. And the last word is conscious. And I'd love for you to unpack that okay. in regards to this particular context. The first word in the title. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I was thinking about that. Uh, I've thought about it a lot, but I was thinking about it before our call because I thought that would come up. And conscious for me in, in this context just really means paying attention and uh, examining, uh, witnessing. But, you know, paying attention probably sums it up. Because so much of, I mean, the, the book's called Conscious Kink for Couples, and that's what we're talking about. And, and there's a, I think there's an obvious sexual connotation to that. And sex itself is such an interesting topic. And, um, mm-hmm. and there's so much that's unconscious about sex, especially as we begin our sexual adventures and journeys in life. It, it comes from a, a, an unconscious place. And so I think our, our opportunity is to increasingly bring our attention to that part of our life. So that's, that's what I try to do with, with this book and in my work and my life and, and so on is, mm. is, is bring attention. Mm. 
you work as a relationship counselor, particularly in, in marriage and also in these areas of sex and intimacy. And I'm curious what possessed you to want to write this book? Uh, well, it was an, it was an edgy book for me to write. I work with predominantly, uh, well, the kind of full spectrum that you find in the world of, of, of people. Um, and it's mostly pretty conventional and in some ways I'm pretty conventional, but there's in other ways I'm not, uh, what I, what I, began to notice from work with clients, from my own life, from my, my own reading and experience, meeting people, is that conscious kinky couples uh, have perspectives and experiences that are actually potentially useful for everybody in the realm of sex and intimacy and eroticism. So I wanted to kind of distill some of these insights from that, from, from those communities, if you will, and make them accessible to anybody. And I also wanted to provide a, a, a good solid starting point for people who were curious, but you know, it, it's intimidating. Mm -hmm. uh, kink and BDSM, sex in general. It's an intimidating topic. And so when you, when you move to the margins, um, it's kind of a wilderness. So I, I wanted to give people just a, 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 like, a like a, a breadcrumb trail or, mm -hmm. or a starting place. And like I say in the book, I think for most people, that, that book will probably set you up for the, the first year of, uh, of kink mm -hmm. exploration. Um, and I mean, I, I, I come back to it uh, occasionally still. And, and I think there's, it, it depends on everyone's journey. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But I think there, I think there's material in there that's probably relevant for, for many years, for many people. I have read the book. It was a couple of years ago now uh, when you wrote it. And I remember actually how much I appreciated the level of, uh, your capacity to to yeah articulate a lot of the territory in a way that also brought in um, a kind of demystification, but also actually a, a, a mystification, yeah. which is a kind right. of a beautiful yes. dance between those. And a little bit about my story that you know I grew up in a fairly conventional you know relationship. Um, I married around twenty six uh, and together with my partner then for about six about five about six years. And, uh, you know, in many ways, we had a beautiful, you know, erotic life. And also, knowing now what I know, that it was very conventional, um, you know, very vanilla in, in some, some ways that word's used. And not to disparage that at all, but just to say that there was a lot of territory which we had no idea about. And um, for me, it wasn't until actually the end of the marriage, which, you know, came about for a variety of reasons, but... Um, that that really opened the gateway for me to begin this exploration. I, I connected with a woman who had a lot more experience in that realm than I did, um, and I remember that you know the the experiences of first going to like my first kink party and uh, having these kind of ritualized erotic experiences um, really felt like uh, almost almost as if I'd been in a I don't know on an island, let's say that I I, I felt like I knew the whole thing. I was like, oh, you know, I've been here for a while. I, you know, there's the beach, there's the, mm. you know, the the lookout, and 
And all of a sudden, it was almost like discovering a whole magical gateway to realize that, oh, the place that I had spent most of my life, in this case, probably, I don't know, 31 or 32 years, was actually just a very small area of like a much vaster territory of this, um, not just kink, but also, I mean, so many realms to explore, which again, before I really had any sense of the territory, I just didn't even know it was out there. Hmm. So I feel like a lot of couples too, a lot of men in particular, are pro- probably in a very similar boat, maybe in this culture, is that, you know, you, you kind of, you think you know uh, enough that you're like, oh yeah, there's nothing left to explore until you kind of get in and and peek through the curtain and all of a sudden it's like this whole universe and so i bought your book for me also really helped to articulate that universe in a way that i hadn't uh experienced before that's great Um, i'm glad to hear that thanks for Mm. telling me Mm. and i'm curious for you what was one of your first experiences in this world that um you remember as a kind of turning point perhaps of you know really awakening you to that new territory I think I have to, I think I have to go back a a little bit for that. So maybe um 10 plus years ago now uh it was with a a, a colleague who introduced me really to masculine feminine principles. Uh mm-hmm. by way of mostly David Data's work. Um, so, and in some ways that planted the seed for maybe a a couple years later, um, being interested in kink. Um, so it, it had to do with polarities Mm. and the, 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 the sexual polarity work that this colleague had introduced me to in, in my journey it helped me connect with a kind of masculine essence, to use David Data's words, his language, that had been missing for me. You know, I was I was raised largely by a single mom, uh, and in, in a time of. Um, of a real change around gender roles and I was I, I, I was a sensitive man and uh and so to be introduced to this idea that, that of of sexual polarity that that kind of planted the seed for me. So I, I worked with that in my life and my relationship for a couple of years. And then yeah I I mean I don't have a particular moment but I will say um getting together with my current partner uh, seven years ago really provided a, a collaborative opportunity. It's like Mm. she wasn't necessarily more experienced in that, but we were both ripe for it. uh, And we came together at the right time. So it was just a real, a real synergistic time for us and mm. and so together we we started exploring and experimenting and reading and turning to the the literature and there's some good stuff out there and um and and kind of just turned our 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 sex life and our relationship into a laboratory and a playground for experimentation so it was very collaborative in that way i didn't have to 
And then, you know, I, I know people and I look around and, um, you know, a lot of people have to kind of do it as a single person or on, on their own. And I think that experience would be much different. Mm-hmm. I think you highlight one of the elements of uh, conscious kinky couples, as I recall from a, a different interview I listened to. Um, this idea that, that not, maybe not even kinky, but conscious uh, erotic couples, they make time to explore. Yes. I understand. Yeah. And maybe you could speak a little bit to that. And I understand the way that you spoke to three elements, actually, of what you consider to be conscious, conscious erotic couples. Um, about baking time. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really important part of that. Uh, I think the part that I want to speak to most is, is uh, related. It's about when you take kinky sex as a topic and you put it on the table, it demands examination. It demands, you know, you know, you, and, and to do it consciously, I mean, the conscious part is about bringing awareness. So you're suddenly having conversations that you never dreamed you would have before. I mean, I don't know if your experience is anything like mine, but I recall just kind of like silently fumbling through sex, trying to guess like what my partner wanted or what my role was or like what we're doing here together and and so to actually put sex and kink and play and dynamics and roles on the table and and actually talk about them explicitly that's a whole new experience and and in some ways i think that's the most valuable experience that that aside from what happens in the bedroom or the dungeon, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> the, the negotiation, and I mean, that word gets used a lot in kink, but I think it goes, it goes far beyond the negotiation of what's going to happen in a scene and more about the negotiation of like, who am I in this and who are you in this and how do we collaborate and, and how do you feel about this and how did that go for you? Like the debriefing mm-hmm. part afterward. And so that's all really new, I think, for most people. And in, in, we tend not to have a, a, a very robust vocabulary around sex and eroticism because we don't exercise it because it's so loaded with insecurity and shame and everything and everything else it's easier to keep a lid on it in some ways um so kink gives you gives you an opportunity to develop a vocabulary to um to discuss to talk about feelings i mean the feelings that come up and that's the richest part for for me is is all is all the debriefing all the i i mean the word processing is it's become like a cliche, but it's, it's, it's those multiple points of connection of emotional Mm -hmm. and intellectual and physical connection with your partner that become possible when you put sex on the table as a topic in that way. For any listeners who may be wondering whether or not this includes them, uh, if they've, you know, haven't dabbled in this world at all. I really like what you said, I think in your book, which is, you know, in a lot of couples, you see that uh, those that maybe believe that they they don't have these unconscious dynamics at play uh, are the ones that actually 
are the are just unconscious of it, but they're certainly present in in you know sounded like almost all the couples that you see and and in all relationships there's there's these elements of uh, like sadism and masochism and and on shadow and all this stuff at play, but conscious kinky couples create the space to actually, as you say, intentionally put it on the table and explore it together rather than keep it in the shadow. Exactly. Yeah. There's a real, there's a real opportunity there. You know, once we, once we put it on the table and we start building a vocabulary then there's that, there's that whole other uh, area of the the shadow aspects of our relationship and how we manipulate one another, how we jostle for control, how we how how power gets expressed in the relationship, and and most of that happens uh, implicitly or unconsciously, and so to make it explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can look in lots of different ways. Uh, we 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 live in such a kind of fluid world now that the the uh, the old um, gender roles obviously have been completely deconstructed in 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 many circles anyway. And and so in terms of in terms of power, it all becomes negotiable now. Uh, so we can we can play whatever role we want and that we that we agree upon with our partner. But 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 back to your point about you know things like sadism and masochism and power plays. I mean, it, it used to be generally accepted that there is a, a power struggle stage of of relationship that we could that we could predict. Um, it's a bit of an old fashioned idea now, I think. But but I think it hold, I think it holds true still. And so when, and, and, and power is a really uh, important part of relationships and an important part of sex. And it's something that gets navigated implicitly and unconsciously mostly. So to be able to eroticize power and uh, explicitly negotiate it with a partner, not only makes sex more interesting, but it kind of unearths some of the 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 hidden dynamics that that normally run through an individual psyche and a relationship system in a couple. Mm. We've used this word shadow as well now, I think, a couple of times. And I'd love for you to give your contextual definition as well of shadow, drawing upon Jung, I believe, and this is what I read in the book as well. And I really loved uh, how you spoke about shadow. I mean, particularly this idea that shadow cannot be approached directly because it's unconscious, because it's in the shadow, and that we need things like myth and art and role play and poetry uh, in order to actually approach something uh, which otherwise would maybe slip from view. Yeah, shadow is, I suppose, that which is hidden. And in, in some circles, it's a popular topic, and I think some people believe they have a pretty good grasp on it. I'm not so sure I have such a good grasp on it. I think the nature of it is that it's kind of ungraspable. You, you know, you, mm. you skirt around it and, and, and like you just pointed out, you, you approach it through a metaphorical lens or a mythical lens or, and, and, and sex and eroticism is in some ways a, a metaphorical lens we play out life's dramas 
um, sexually and erotically. And and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know that the goal is to is to entirely illuminate all that hidden material through exposing it to the light of day. I mean, I think you have to still maintain some respect for the the ungraspable nature of it, but you can approach it from different directions. You can you can kind of deepen your relationship to it. And, and I think that has psychological benefits and it has relational benefits. And I think that's a part of, potentially a part of the kink journey. Hmm. I'd love to illuminate somewhat of how it's played out in my life. And, and in some sense, I think represents a larger pattern that I see also in men. For those listening, uh, I would identify myself as a generally cisgendered man, which means um, you know, I, I, I tend to relate as the gender that I was assigned at birth, uh, as well as largely heterosexual and, and heteroflexible in certain circumstances. Uh, and one of the things that I discovered growing up, you know, with my erotic journey, uh, which only became apparent later, is I think that there's a very strong, uh, you could call it like the good boy, bad boy separation, which, um, you know, how it lived through me was, on the one hand, um, being drawn to women that seem to exhibit more of these qualities of what you could call them like light, um, light beings, or, you know, like sort of the girl next door qualities of, uh, you know, beauty or, or you know, quote, respectability, um, sometimes known as the, you know, the girl that you would bring home to your parents. Like that very much was my kind of uh, overworld uh, attraction. And on the flip side, that in the shadows, um, sometimes through pornography or other ways, there was this uh, desire for the the bad girl, you know, like the the kind of the kinky, the shadowy, the objectified uh, feminine, which um, is the girl that often is pushed to the shadows because in the psyche of the modern man, in this culture at least, there is this duality, it feels. There's this separation between the overworld and the underworld. And the, to make that conscious for me was part of the journey that came about, you know, through the ending of my marriage, which actually instigated an exploration into the kink world, which actually allowed me to begin to actually bring those two worlds together and to realize that, um, you know, when I talk to other men as well, they're often caught in a similar bind in this culture, this unconscious separation between these qualities of like the light and what's seen as respectable and above world, and then this other attraction to the underworld, which is often kept in the shadows. That's a great explanation. Uh, mm. Yeah, that's, that's, re- that's really wonderful. And it, and it rings true for me. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's a, it's a great definition in a way of, of what, uh, what conscious means in this, in this regard, you know, that, that bringing together the, the two, uh, you're, you're kind of describing two, modes of attraction mm-hmm. that if you know when 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 unexamined seem incapable of integration mm-hmm. so it, it it creates a kind of split in you i mean i'm not a Jungian, but of course i you know i i, I admire Jung's work uh mm. Jung was really into the idea of wholeness. So from, from an integration perspective, you're, 
you're kind of describing like a, a, a shadow retrieval or like a, uh, a, a marriage of, of those two modes of attraction for you, like making mm-hmm. space, making enough psychological space for those two things to coexist. And I mean, that must have really blown your mind in a way when you could, <laughs> when you could comprehend both. Hmm. Yeah. And how I've begun to understand that mythically as well, and speaking of, of archetypes in particular uh, in the feminine, there's Eve, which is often seen again as this light, you know, the light feminine, the nurturing feminine, the mother energy. And then there's Lilith, which is often seen as the dark feminine, right? The queen of the demons. And how, um, again, archetypally, that split living within me uh, as conditioned, I think, largely by culture, which itself actually, this is this this split in the culture that I think a lot of women feel actually. This is something that I, I see again and again, you know, when I speak to women, and sometimes I speak of this, that they themselves often feel caught in this bind where, you know, they, on the one hand, have to, present as this kind of uh, respectable woman and at the same time uh, don't want to fall under you know kind of connecting too much or expressing too much of their own eroticism or erotic appetite because of being branded you know a slut or whatever that um, those slanders are and so they themselves actually end up being split right like they have their own inability to hold those two together and what i realized i think after a time was like that split doesn't does not live in women in this culture that split lives in men and in a patriarchal culture where men continue to hold you know a certain degree of the power dynamics that that's the kind of enforced binary actually that women have to in, often internalize and um are or have to do that work to actually bridge themselves and not kind of allow for that split to live in them um, because it's actually the men that need to actually do that work and and in a way as you say allow those that paradox to actually come together and say there's actually no separation like both these archetypes live within the feminine and they live within the masculine too um i think i mostly agree and and the point of divergence might be i think men and women can both do that work and i don't think it falls on one or the other yeah, to clarify too, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a corresponding both sides, I, I should say, that maybe they have the healing. Okay, yeah, so the, there is a corresponding. I mean, there's a, there's a beautiful kind of corresponding and, and opportunity. And, and, and when that happens, you know, through relationship, and um, I mean, gender is such a slippery topic these days. I mean, you can, you can really barely talk about men and women in, in familiar terms without taking a risk right um so so whether you know whether we're talking about men and women or we're we're talking about same-sex couples or however somebody identifies two people coming together and exploring that through masculine feminine dynamics and through the kinds of archetypal uh, personifications that you're describing and you know and there's others uh it it's transformative and it's and it's um and it, it transforms relationships. I mean, in, in my own in, in my own experience, my personal experience, I entered a relationship at a very uh, high growth kind of time. But you know, I work with couples who have been together for a decade and they have kids together, and, and they're used to a certain they're used to a certain tempo, a certain 
a certain role assignment. They've both kind of implicitly agreed to the roles that they'll play, and that includes sexually very mm-hmm. much. So I think it's different, you know, to reinvent an established relationship on those terms. And you you've described the uh, Eve and Lilith as 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 archetypes of the the feminine in, in the way that you've described. What what would the masculine version of that be for you? Hmm. You know, I don't know if there's a corresponding. Uh, um, I mean, I, I use the phrase "good boy" and "bad boy," you know, yeah. as well. And and for me, uh, that's also how it's felt and how that journey felt. You know, again, this good boy is the one that's. Um, you know, respectable and an achiever and good, good in terms of the mother's eyes, right? Like this is again, that unconscious uh, conditioning that happens um, that I actually talk about in a previous episode, largely through my work with Tamara, uh, a community in Portugal, who's done yeah. a lot of work around this stuff. Yeah. yeah so I they would that. call that, yeah, they would call that the sun man archetype, which is essentially the mother pleaser. Right. Okay. And, and, and so much of the young men in this culture, they they cross that threshold into their sexuality often again very unconsciously and often in situations where you know they're they're very uncertain actually about you know how they even feel about it but they're maybe pushed into kind of conquest dynamics or you know domination domination over the feminine as a, a way of keeping score of their own you know uh, respectability in their peers and so there's this kind of a dualism that's set up where then later on and this is my experience was after the marriage ended and i really felt in some ways actually abandoned by the feminine i really actually went into what i would call my own underworld in relation to this uh this this dualism where i basically became almost like let myself go deep into that uh desire to objectify the feminine and like desire to dominate her but consciously uh and as a way of actually you know like making that part actually known to myself consciously right. instead of or letting them be unconscious. Yeah. Yes. And and again, that's something I feel I do think I see, and maybe you as well, there's patterns in men where they think they don't have that, they think it doesn't live inside them, yes. uh, but it just ends up playing itself out in unconscious ways. Right. And and some sometimes it gets turned outward mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes it gets turned inward. So it becomes a, like a suppressed or a repressed kind of energy that results yeah. in you know various kinds of blockages and um, frustration and and sometimes rage yeah i'd love to keep this arrow in the air too because i think we're going to circle back to shadow um a little bit later and i'd love for you actually to to lay out i heard you use three types of sex or you spoke to three types of sex um, that I think are helpful also to provide a scaffolding for understanding what we're talking about in relation to, um, I mean, I can even sketch it and then I'd love for you to speak to it. One is a uh, spontaneous sex, right? That you've spoken to, that that's a kind of idealized, um, you know, joyful, you know, idea of sex between a couple. And then there's maintenance sex. Uh, and then there's ritual sex. I believe that's what I heard. So, Maybe I'd love for you to speak a little bit about each of those because I do want to dive more into what is ritual sex in the, in this context. Oh boy, okay. Well, like you like you said, spontaneous sex I think holds a very special fantasy for mm-hmm. many people, and and I think it's a fantasy that is hard to let go of. I mean, it's such a beautiful fantasy. You mm-hmm. you you don't 
there's there's no effort required that it's kind of a it's like a magical experience um you just get swept into feeling into desire and the thing and it just and it just plays out beautifully and and so this the spontaneous sex fantasy it's like very little is required of you Mm. you know and then counter to that the idea of of maintenance sex. I mean, even the 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 name the name of it is like about as as <laughs> sexy as you can imagine. And that's and that's because the idea exists as a flip side to spontaneous sex. So spontaneous sex is glorified. Maintenance sex is like demonized. And then there's like this third path. There's probably more, but um, ritual sex is planned. You, it, it, it's not spontaneous, but it's not maintenance. I mean, maintenance sex is implicitly dead. I mean, maintenance is something you do on your car <laughs> so that it continues to run. There's nothing lively about it. But ritualized sex maintains life. It, it has its own kind of life. It has its, it, its own kind of honor. I, I presented those ideas as a way to bridge that gap between that polarized thinking between spontaneous sex and maintenance sex. It, it, yeah, as a way to bridge that, as a way to, to deepen the possibility there. And, and it sounds like you know, that the, the idea of ritualized sex really resonates for you. So I'm, I'm curious to hear in what ways. Well, I'd love for you to even sketch out just a brief uh, journey of what a, what, a, what a ritual sex encounter may look like. Just so, again, mm. people have a kind of scaffolding to understand what we're talking about here. Okay. Knowing that it can look, yeah, knowing that it can look very different, you know, in some totally. ways. But there's, they think there's totally. certain elements that might be, you know, included in a generalized sense. Sure. I, I mean, we can, we can think of ritualized sex in, in some ways as like, uh, you know, you think of the bath and the candles and the flower petals. And I mean, there's, there's that kind of whole end of it. Even dinner and a movie and then sex. I mean, that's a certain kind mm. of ritualized sex. Less conscious, but so so we have we have we definitely have unconscious sexual rituals so that that this this brings the the idea of consciousness back into the equation too the difference between uh, conscious ritualized sex and unconscious ritualized sex so so one, once we start to talk explicitly about sex and put these things on the table like we've been saying we can start to build uh rituals that suit us um in, in we probably have to experiment before we know if they suit us or not, or not, which involves a lot of risk. So, I mean, I want to be, I want to be clear about that. There's, there's so much risk involved in bringing more awareness to sex. There's so, there's so many disappointments and hurt feelings and I mean, potential physical risks, but I'm talking more about the emotional and psychological ones. I know I'm getting a bit off a bit off track here, but it's important to bring that into the conversation too. That there's something risky about all of this. So the, the the ritualization, I think, the ritualization of sex for a particular couple is a process. It isn't it isn't like 
you know right away here you know here's here's our sexual ritual or or rituals it's 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 trial by error in some ways and over time you might build a kind of um pattern and 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 an expectation and so the 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 ritualization i know and i know i i I think anyway that you're you're wanting a more kind of specific picture and 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 i'll do that in in a kink context it might mean well collaring is such the the classic iconic bdsm or or kink ritual the when you're working with an explicit power exchange the submissive or the bottom is collared by the 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 top or the uh, dominant and and that is a ritual that uh ex- that 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 defines or communicates the 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 power exchange and the move from one mode to another mode so i think that's one of the important things about ritual in general and and in sex or kinky sex it signifies the move from one type of of or one mode of relationship to another mode this is assuming that you're in a relationship that isn't a 24/7 dynamic which is not most people that's an extreme version i've got no judgment about it it's great for for those people but it's it's not applicable to most people and you know part of what i tried what i've tried to do is make aspects of kink and BDSM a little more accessible to uh, a, a broader audience of curious couples. Um, so that, that collaring is the, is the, the iconic example, but it might be uh, other articles of clothing. Here's, here's what I wear. It might be um, words. Here's what we say to one another. Um, it might be postures. Here's how I present myself to you or vice versa to signify the move into this space. Mm. Yeah, this, I'm, I really appreciate that. Um, and uh, maybe I could sketch to at least some of what my experience of how I would say craft a ritual experience Great. Uh, with, with a couple or, or with a partner. Um, I think, like you said, it signals a, a kind of intentionality um, to craft some kind of uh, intentional exploration. Often, uh, is about setting a certain container for a certain period of time, yeah. uh, and some way of signaling that there's a threshold, a crossing into this this uh, alternative space. And um, you spoke about this, uh, uh, like collaring, for example. And I mean, I, I'm happy to just share a little bit about my experience in that sure. particular example. Great. Yeah, and uh, in the times that I've, I have, we have experimented that with a, a prior uh, partner as well. That for me, what I appreciated about it actually was, uh, you know, on the one hand, those maybe non-experienced in that realm might say, "Oh, that's that's I don't know, objectifying or or treating you like an animal or, or I don't know." There's some kind of often a judgment that comes in. Sure, right? And the experience from the inside for me was actually one of, uh, in a way, like consciously surrendering my own mm, sovereignty is maybe part of it but maybe better understood as the own my own need to be in control all the time right which is i think common as well for that kind of construct where mm-hmm. i was like 
I was able to step into a realm where it was like, thank God, I don't have to be in control anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I could just put that part of myself down that, again, most people actually don't even know they're running 24-7. Um, and I was able to re- put my trust in the other, in that case, for the duration of the scene, mm-hmm. that I could just, yeah, I could just, you know, put down that piece. And then all of a sudden, be in another place that access different places within myself that maybe were inaccessible when I was always, you know, in the seat of needing to be in control. So, you know, that was one example for me about what I felt I benefited from, you know, in that particular um, example. I mean, I think another uh, type of ritual that I've really appreciated is uh, what's often referred to as sensation play. Um, Yeah, yeah, which can mean a lot of things, which, you know, could be um, biting, scratching, uh, feathers, you know, electric wands. Like there's a lot of, you know, things in that repertoire. Uh, But I'll say for me, again, as one often who is, uh, I'll just say, allergy in my head a lot of the time. You know, I try to do a lot of embodiment work and movement and dance, you know, on my own. But, you know, I really like the intellectual realm, the the Mm. rational intellectual realm. It's very creative for me. Um, And at the same time, I find that sensation play, uh, particularly, you know, in other areas of my body, can really bring me into a kind of, um, yeah, somatic presence, which actually, again, is, is I feel difficult to access, you know, in other ways. And again, I feel deeply grateful that uh, through ritualized play that I've been able to touch like really deep states of almost, I'd almost call them, you know, borderline samadhi states of, you know, no, no mind, you know, because mm-hmm. of using using the sensation. And some people might say pain, right? But I mean, also what I've appreciated about understanding pain differently is that you know pain is sort of a an idea of an interpretation of sensation Mm -hmm. that you know for some people what a sensation might be painful and for others it might be blissful and there's Um, a spectrum yeah no doubt so so again for me like there's another way in which i'm I'm trying to at least um maybe uh, concretize some of these examples that we're speaking to about you know what's it like to be on the inside and what the benefit is to actually begin to explore these places yeah so one of the benefits that you're naming is the freedom that comes with uh, giving one's power to another in that ritualized power exchange. And you talk about the container, which I think is, which is, is great. And that, in that uh, um, moving into the container and then moving out of the container too. So there can be rituals for completion uh yeah everything that you're saying is really bang on and and it and it it matches my own experience and my observations in others and and my my whole understanding so i mean that was kind of the other thing i was trying to accomplish with this book was to the idea of of collaring it does it, it it is objectifying it is dehumanizing and and so we're afraid of it and we avoid it and we are objectifying and we are dehumanizing. That's kind of part that, that that's that underworld part of our human experience that you've spoken to a couple of times. And so rather than only distancing ourselves uh, from those parts of the human experience, this gives us an opportunity to familiarize ourselves without acting it out in harmful ways this isn't about doing harm ever that is the opposite of what it's about 
So, yeah, thanks for sharing your your experience of that. I think that's going to be illuminating for people. Mm. I had a friend, uh, we're speaking about this topic recently, and he he was curious uh, after being in some experiences of exploring kink um, with previous partners that um, there was real dangers that came up you know, with this territory, like you said, it's risky to explore this. And particularly though, around a lot of uh, un- kind of unknown trauma that a lot of people are carrying. Um, and on the one hand, uh, you know, I think I read somewhere in some, um, someone perspective was saying that all, all kink is related to some trauma that, that somehow, uh, you know, the, the goal is to wanting to, that the trauma wants to be healed and then, you know, the kink's gone. And I, I'm not saying I, I agree with that at all, but, mm-hmm. But it certainly, I do think there are these relationships between uh, trauma and, you know, what was taboo or not, or, you know, unconscious areas that do want to be healed. And what are some of the dangers, though, that, you know, a couple uh, could maybe not know they're stepping into, and particularly around this territory of, of shadow and trauma? I think it's fascinating how much attention trauma is getting in the popular culture. I mean, that's really new. I watch, I watch, you know, my, my favorite series now. Television's changed a lot since I was a kid, mm-hmm. let me tell you. Um, and trauma is explicitly or implicitly woven into the narrative of virtually every good movie or television series today. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's so it's very much a part of the, the popular consciousness now in a way that you know it wasn't even when i started doing this work you know 10 plus years ago so that's really interesting i'm I'm not surprised to hear that for some theorists kink is reduced to a is reduced to trauma essentially i I don't share that opinion but it's it's a it's an interesting perspective um i think it's an important thing to be considerate of. And, and really, I think it just speaks to the value of going slow. Mm. That, that's one of the, one of the, one of the things that, that, that kink does is it puts the locus of control and responsibility and sovereignty back into your own hands. So it, you have to take responsibility for the experience that you co-create and that's going to rest largely on the trust that you have the rapport that you have with your partner that's the benefit of 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 doing this with within the container of of a, of a loving relationship trust was one of the things that you brought up mm. in terms of ritual and moving into that space so i think that's a great foundation mm-hmm. the that the trust is a great foundation i think um going slowly also taking breaks like pressing pause and 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 if you're doing kind of power dynamic play we haven't really gotten into the different kinds of kinky play and 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 how power dynamics do or do not play into that and i think that's an important part of it and i think it relates to this question would you like to just sketch some of that right now yeah, I mean, in, in very general terms, I think that kink can be categorized into two. There's 
there's power exchange kink and there's non-power exchange kink. I mean, there's lots of ways to organize ideas, mm. but I think that's a valuable one because kink for some people is absolutely about power. And, and it's absolutely about what I call erotic power exchange, where there is a clear power dynamic, I'm top and bottom, dominant and submissive. And as you've expressed firsthand, there's something very liberating in, the, in, in, that, in that dynamic for the bottom or the submissive. So the other category is where there is no power exchange. And, and I generally associate that more with um, sensation play, where you're, you're, into, you're into doing something that kind of falls under the kink umbrella, but there's no power exchange involved. It's kind of, you're, 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 on, you're on equal footing in terms, in terms of power and control. So I think I just think that's a that's a use because because if we have an assumption about about that we can we 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 might kind of exclude ourselves from some possibilities. Hmm. So both of those possibilities are are available. You don't have to conform to the power exchange model uh, to find yourself in something something else that kink has to offer. Mm-hmm. One of the patterns that I experienced in myself, and I also think is reflective uh, a lot more largely in the culture, is for men, um, almost like a, a, a unwillingness to really step into a role of dominance within a, like a ritual space. And it, which sounds almost ironic, right? Because like I said, in a, in a culture, in the culture at large, often men are in positions of power uh, and exert a kind of maybe unconscious dominance a lot of the time with the power structures as they are mm-hmm. or, or objectify uh, women largely based on, again, these, these commodified uh, realms of sexuality, for example. Sure. But even when there was an invitation for me to step into a more dominant uh, position within a scene, I found it extraordinarily difficult uh, originally because, yeah, there's, uh, for me, again, this is butting up against that whole idea of the good boy, right? Yes. And, and this, you know, oh, I, I wouldn't, you know, I'm a good man. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't dominate a woman. Um, and yet within a particular scene and with my partner then at the time, like they were craving that. Right. And I actually, I actually hear this a lot too, maybe in, uh, I can only speak to heterosexual experiences, but where often, yeah, the woman did want to be, you know, they even say this, you know, I really want you to take me like fully. Sure. And, and then there's a real challenge on the man's side to really occupy that seat. And I'm curious for you if you've noticed this also as a common pattern with uh, men in this culture and, and often like what was the block for men to really be willing to take that seat? Well, this one uh, speaks quite directly to my own personal experience. Mm. This, is, this is where the, the opportunity was really big for me and, and where the edge was for me. Like I say, like I, I'm, I'm quite a sensitive man, and I, I grew up as a, a sensitive boy, and I cherish that sensitivity and that, that sense of equality and equity and, and concern and consideration for others, and especially for women, and in some ways, the historical plight of, of, of women I have a lot of sympathy for. So when I started to recognize that, some women sometimes want to be taken by a man. They want to feel my dominance, my confidence. Um, that, 
you know, when, when, when I first started becoming aware of that as a teenager, I found it quite disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, really, it really troubled me and continued to well into my 20s. You know, I wrestled with that dilemma. So yeah, I think that I think that's a real thing. I know it is from my own experience. I I, I see it in others. I see it play out in in the the couples' relationships who I work with. Uh, I want I want to be careful of of not making too generalized statements because again, I mean, we live in such a time of social deconstruction and reinvention that you can't you, you know you you. You can't count on well as a man i can't I can't assume that women want this or that and and it can change we can change roles at at will now I mean this used to be written into our social codes and to some extent it still is, and we're still feeling the echoes of it, and it's all changing very quickly uh so yes, I think for many men, it is intimidating. And and diff- I mean, a lot of men have done a lot of work to become more sensitive, to become more considerate, and now it's like it's like whiplash. It's like what you want now? You like which <laughs> is it? Like what am I? How am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do this? How do I get it right? And so it speaks to a, a playfulness, a flexibility, the need for a playfulness, the need for a flexibility, the need in some ways for like fuller integration, a bigger uh, a, a, a bigger um, repertoire. I mean, this is in, in many ways, it's about, it's about building a larger repertoire, both sexually, uh, but also in life. I mean, the, the correlate to what we're talking about here, this is, this is where I see it actually more often is like, well, what do you want for dinner tonight? Oh, I don't know. What do you want? Mm. Well, I don't know. What do you want? Well, if you want this, I'm happy with that. <laughs> you know, so the, I mean, this, this, and it's infuriating. Um, and, in, and in a way, it's infuriating in a specific kind of way for some reason for women who are stuck in in this dynamic with men and they just want a man to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to prescribe something for men in general in how to be with women because it doesn't work that way. You know, we we have to build bigger repertoires. We have to we 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 and we have to communicate and we have to be ready to to change modes and 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 sex teaches us this you know, what was what felt good a couple moments ago isn't feeling good now and this is true for men and women but i think there's big learnings in this for men because women's bodies seem to be more adaptable in some ways and i don't know if that's physiological or bio- inherently biological or it's conditioning or whatever probably it's a, it's a bunch of things but there's a lesson for men about um about flexibility and 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 if we can move into that role of in charge of dominant without adopting it as an inflexible identity then so much more becomes possible for us Sexually and otherwise. I mean, we're talking about conscious kink. So in that in that context, boy, you know, so much more becomes possible. And there's so much. I, I I've known for many women, when when their male partner is able to embody that, the dam breaks. Something just flows. Something opens up. It's 
it's it's remarkable. So that's a real thing. I appreciate this a lot. I, and especially this dance between prescription and and pattern. Maybe I could say it that way. That you know, there's something uh, kind of that's a disservice to the cultural conversation when certain recognizable patterns that appear again and again for whatever reason, um, not because necessarily you know all men need to be this or all women need to be that, but just to be able to recognize the patterns and to integrate them actually creates what I believe more of a, a trustworthiness, you know, among the spectrum of genders. And I think particularly on this question of being able to inhabit like the dominant seat, let's say in a, in a scene, I think there is something that, that, that creates a deeper degree of trust in the other because that part now becomes known, I think, to that person. And, you know, like say for yes. me as a man, if I'm unconscious about when I move into dominance, like you say, if it's, you know, passive aggressiveness in a conversation right. about dinner or something yes. or yeah, or yeah. maybe other ways yeah, it plays out. If I, if I, if that remains unknown to me, I'm actually less trustworthy to my partner because the interactions are largely underground. But totally. if I if I have access to those places and then and then I know I'm like ooh there I go I want to go into a dominant mode in this conversation I can catch myself and then in you know be different in lots of interactions not just in the bedroom. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So so there, there's so much about personal growth and integration and you know however you want to frame that uh, within within a conscious kink practice. Yeah. It 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 cultivates and brings out. Uh, more parts of ourselves so that we can see them so that we can work with them so that we can be more discerning more mm-hmm. flexible more discerning more appropriate and and you know have more fun have more intense fun mm-hmm. more pleasure uh more more types of engagement with our partner i'll i'll tell you i'll tell you a quick a, a quick story i i uh my 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 wonderful partner sue and and i we've done a, a couple of um rope bondage performances at a erotic art show nearby for we did we, we did a couple over a, a couple of years and um so i was i was tying her up and and the whole while you know i'm i'm very aware this is edgy for people and, and especially given um our genders and and the 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 uh the kind of historical context for male domination over women. This, this, this happens to be the, the dynamic mostly that where there's some flexibility, but mostly that that's, that's what suits us. Um, and I had a conversation with someone, I, I get some questions afterwards and you know, it's an erotic art show, but it's still, it's still edgy for people. And, and I, I was just really, I was just really transparent that like, yeah, this is, I'm aware that this is a cliche in some ways, you know, um, and that's okay. There's probably lots of parts of my life that are a cliche in mm-hmm. some ways, but the other, you know, so, and some people, I had a good conversation with one person. Another person was quite hostile towards me and, and you know, and, and they're, they're quite, well, why are you doing, why are you doing the time? Why are you getting tied on it? Uh, you know, for one thing, my partner trusts me to tie them up because I've worked to develop this skill. They don't know how to do that. They would be insane for me to, to put myself in their hands in that way. I don't, I don't know that you see the, the trust and the, and the rapport and the love between us in this. It's easy to miss, I think, for a casual observer. 
so yeah, I, I just kind of wanted to speak to that, that, that things aren't always what they seem when we, when we play out these roles, there's a lot of, there's a lot of undercurrents. And when you bring that into public, it becomes even riskier in a way, you know, in this particular story, it all worked out quite well. And hmm. there was the, we, we, we arrived at a kind of understanding. This question of consent, I believe we, we touched on briefly and it's, you know, I see as well a pretty large piece of the conversation, um, not just in kink and BDSM, but also, you know, in any kind of erotic interaction, this idea of consent, you know, is, mm-hmm. is very alive. And yeah. on the one hand, um, I would love for you to illuminate just maybe a, a brief understanding of what consent means within an erotic context. Um, maybe ways of seeking consent, not exhaustively, but again, for somebody who's maybe less familiar with this term, how would you describe what what consent is in as a both a kind of a definition, but also like a way to approach the encounter? There's probably people who could speak to this so much better than me. I mean, again, the, the idea of consent is so I, I think ubiquitous in in at least the worlds that I inhabit today. Um, but you're right; it's ab- it's absolutely important. I mean, most recently, my my examination of consent. I write a lot. I'm a writer, uh, and so I write about things that interest me in in relationships. And I write about what I learn in my work with couples because I learn a ton from the couples that I work with. And you, I I I I, I see patterns, and I want to share those patterns with others. Um, and lately, I've been writing about consent. In fact, the way that I've been exploring it more recently is is less about sex and more about how we relate through conversation and having consensual conversations because what i've seen a lot of and i'm going to i'm going to come back to the more direct question but i I want to touch on this because it's current for me and and i think it's important i see couples partners people who uh corner their partners in converse in conversation because they want satisfaction. They demand an explanation. They demand an agreement. They make some demands conversationally on their partner. And what I've been trying to teach my, my clients who, who do this, it, I've been trying to teach them about consent and I've been trying to teach them about consent in that context and, and how much better how much more is available to them? How much more successful and satisfied they're going to be if they obtain consent and active consent for that conversation than when they corner their partner into it and feel entitled to it. So there's something about entitlement and consent too. Mm. So I wanted to lead with that. In terms of consent and sex and, and kink and eroticism and so on, I mean consent like i i i work with and tend to write for what i'll call established couples and consent probably looks a little different for established couples than it does for kind of casual acquaintances or 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 whatever i think there's some there's the important thing that i want to say i think about consent is is about explicitness. So we might we might get implicit signals of consent and they might be real or they might be imagined. But with it, but explicit consent which is verbal 
uh, and specific, I think is 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 important and and it mitigates uh, it, it helps mitigate risks for couples who are exploring kink, and it and it, I think it's actually difficult for the same reason that talking about sex is difficult. It's we're not used to doing it, and we're not used to doing it in real time. Um, so it's like we have to we have to grow a new muscle in a way. We have to exercise something that feels uncomfortable. Uh, I'm not a consent expert. Like I know there's there's people who are like really into it and really explore it and define it and prescribe it in very specific ways. Like I've seen all the memes and the sheets and the handouts and the rules on the wall and and all of that. And and I think that's great. I'm glad someone's doing it. Uh, but it's not exactly my area of expertise, largely because I work with couples and I work with established couples and it, and it looks different and there's more implied consent. And sometimes sexually, you know, sometimes it comes up, but not that often. It, it, it's more the way it, it extends into everyday life and conversation like, a, like, I, like mm-hmm. I named at the beginning. So I think that's about the best I can do with that mm-hmm. one right now. I do appreciate that. I do think it gives a, a, a scaffolding too to something that I'd love to float as well in this conversation, which um, I'm still trying to figure out exactly how to speak to it in a way because because I do agree. Consent to me feels like the first achievement, you know, within and let's say now within an erotic context. Um, often, like you say, if it's verbal, explicit, all the rest, and and there's something really necessary. I think about that. And for me, I ultimately, as I began to really, you know, read a lot of the literature and and hear the discussions, still felt like it left a lot kind of below the surface, which is actually a bit of a deeper thing, I think, which is being asked, which I've started to try to understand as contact, as in the ability to be in contact dynamically within the journey of, let's say, a ritual sexual encounter, Mm. whereby, whereby the goal of it is not to have sex, like you know, for example, because um, I think this is often one of the unlearnings that has to happen as well for, you know, men maybe who have been conditioned into, again, this goal-oriented uh, format of, of eroticism. I like where you're going. <laughs> so to release the goal that there's any particular outcome that's actually supposed to happen and just to be present to what's actually unfolding in real time. And for example, that might look like maybe the other person actually says, yes, I want you to proceed, but the other could actually perceptively be able to read body language or tonality and maybe including actually, their own body language. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to say, wait a second, you know what? I, I hear you saying this is true or yes, but it doesn't feel true. I, like, is it really true? And then the other could say, you know what? Actually, I checked again and you're right. Actually, there's something else, you know, that's true. And maybe we go that direction. So for that sense, I do feel like to me, that's the, the kind of mastery I feel, which consent is really the kind of training wheels it feels like for. Right. And, uh, yeah, and so you know, again, it's a, that's a huge conversation. It uh, does largely draw upon my time at Tamara uh, as well, who also have a, a somewhat of a rich vocabulary around this idea of contact. Mm. Um, but I've really started to see it as um, not just a kind of a check the box thing, but but again, this dynamic skillfulness to really be present to what's unfolding, no matter you know the 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 outcome. Yeah, I really like what you're pointing toward here. Uh, I mean, part part of why that the the word itself is kind of dissonant for me is that it implies one it it, it implies a goal, you know, as, as consent. It, you're speaking to now, 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it implies a, like we're moving towards this thing. Like, um, and, and that's really limiting in a way. And I, and I think you're recognizing that and speaking to it. So consent, consent to me is a word kind of like sustainability. It's kind of mm. like there's there's nothing that exciting about it. Like it, it's a baseline, and 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 you're getting you know it's like training wheels, right? It's like it's kind of a bottom line. It's like if you don't have consent, man, like you you need to check that, right? Like, but it just that there's so much beyond that. I mean, words like collaborative come up, mm. like, um, and and the word that you're using, contact. That's great, and um and and part of part of what you're pointing toward. And part of what I think that we haven't really touched on about the the potential for kink in a, in a in a relationship is that it it delivers you from this the escalation the 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 kind of automatic sexual escalation that most of us have come to internalize as normal first base second base third base home run. Uh, kink can blow that apart. It's it, it and and in fact, I I I want it to. I I hope that it does. I think that that for men and women both, that familiar uh, assumed escalation of sexual engagement to penetration and orgasm is um, is really limiting. And you know, kink gives an opportunity to make contact in in such a variety of rich ways outside of that typical escalation. So I kind of associate in some ways the idea of consent with like, okay, I've taken you to first base. Can I take you to second base? Mm, Is it okay mm-hmm. to go to third base? Can I go for the home run? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I don't want to speak against the idea of consent at all, obviously. But I'd like I'd like to uncouple it from that that whole familiar pattern of escalation, and I and I I I would really encourage people to use kink to interrupt their usual arousal cycle. We have we all have a a, a very habituated arousal cycle that and, and for many of us for most of us maybe for all of us there's something deeply anxiety provoking about interrupting that arousal cycle deeply anxiety provoking and but it's really important and if we confront the anxiety that that brings up and 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 uh, um, you know kinky practices and and ritual and so on is a wonderful kind of container for doing that then so much more becomes possible, and and when we start doing that, you know, it we 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 can see how our our habituated ways actually extend beyond in in our life, and and sex is a kind of microcosm for life. It's a kind of metaphor for life, and we've touched on that, and I really I really see the the truth of that. And so when we work in the realm of sexuality, and we confront our 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 habits and our unconsciousness it translates into our our life and to the world at large i really believe that mm. that's a beautiful place i think to wrap up our conversation today i agree i'd love to give a shout out to your book conscious king for couples 
which uh, I highly recommend. It's it's excellent um, in a lot of ways that we've spoken to. Uh, it goes into much more detail as well on a certain amount of these themes and and really provides you, uh, I think like you said, with at least the first year of equipping you for this territory. And uh, where can the listeners find your book, Justice? You can get it at mykinkbook.com. Beautiful. Anything else you want to leave the listeners with today? Um, I just, I just really appreciate you having me on your show and, and, uh, and what you've added to the conversation. I mean, that's, that's been, uh, that's been really important and, and I appreciate what you, what you've brought to this. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the mythic masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com network to learn more.